This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. Today I'm joined on the show by Screenfish's Steve Norton. We're going to be talking about Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, a critically acclaimed film that won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. We'll follow up that discussion with our review of Disney Plus's The Mandalorian. We're going to be looking at that television series' second season. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 274 of Seeing and Believing. Here, episode 274 of Seeing and Believing. I'm joined by Steve Norton. Steve is a Toronto-based writer and podcaster who loves to listen to what matters to our culture on screen. He's also an editor and a podcaster at ScreenFish.net. Steve, thank you for joining us again on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back, Wade. I always a privilege. Uh, and I hope that I can live up to the legacy that Kevin keeps uh, and try and keep up with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, no, I try to do that too. Uh, <laughs> listeners, Kevin is out this week. He and his wife Kylie had a baby, Milo. And I was thinking about this, Steve. If you flip M on Milo upside down, you get a W. And I feel like that says everything. It's all we really need to know. They named the baby after me. And it's, it's pretty clear. Pretty clear. Well, they did if your name is Wilo. Uh. <laughs> true. Uh, true. But Steve, you, I feel like you've been on, you've been on multiple times. And I, I think you've been on with me when Kevin was out. And then you've also been on with Kevin whenever I've been out. Hmm. So you've kind of, you kind of hit everything here on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I said, it's always a privilege. You know what? It's always fun to not only just come on this show, but when you're invited onto somebody else's, uh, just to be a part of, of their conversations as well and their style. And, and I've always enjoyed coming on and chatting with you both. In fact, so much so that I've had you both on, not only as my show as individuals, but last May, I had you both on together, uh, oh, yeah. which was really cool. So, yeah, absolutely yeah. love chatting with you guys. That was a lot of fun. We did we did comfort films and fil- films that we just 
you know, they're comfort food to us. And I talked about a film that I love, Wolfgang Peterson's Air Force One. You really can't beat it if you're talking about comfort food films. <laughs> yeah, that, that, <laughs> that is the very definition of a comfort food film in so many ways. Uh, you can just sit oh, back and enjoy it and let Harrison Ford tell you to get off his plane and just enjoy the ride. So <laughs> just just. Just enjoy the flight. No, it's it's amazing. We are going to talk about a film that I think is probably the farthest thing from a comfort food film. <laughs> and that is Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. Here's the movie's official synopsis to get us going. Following the economic collapse of a company town in rural Nevada, Fern, played by Frances McDormand, packs her van and sets off on the road exploring a life outside of conventional society as a modern-day nomad. The third feature film from Chloe Zhao, Nomadland features real nomads, Linda May, Swanky, and Bob Wells as Fern's mentors and comrades in her exploration through the vast landscape of the American West. Steve, Nomadland is being touted as one of the year's best movies. Most notably, it won the Golden Lion for Best Film at the 2020 Venice Film Festival. In your opinion, does Nomadland live up to the praise, and will it make your list of some of the best films of 2020? Well, and before I answer that, Wade, I think that you should be cautious when you say, most notably it won the Golden Lion, because... Immediately following the Golden Lion win, it took the Grolsch People's Choice Award at the Toronto International Film Festival as well. So yes, in your in your neck of the it woods, absolutely did. So shout out to <laughs> my homeland. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in that regard, um, this is uh, when I saw Nomadland. I mean, there was already the wait because it had just taken the Golden Lion and there was always already sort of these expectations placed on it. And I have to admit that when I saw it, I was trying, not that I was trying not to like it, but I was trying not to fall in love with it because everybody was falling all over this film. But there is something so unique and special about the work that is being done in this particular film that I, I will not say it was my favorite film of the year. However, I do believe it is one of the best films of the year. Absolutely. And deserving of the praise that it's gotten for the simple fact that the way that it expresses his story, or the way that it expresses its story, the, the characters that are brought in along the way, the way that Chloe Zhao allows the land to sort of tell its own story. Um, it is a remarkable piece. And I truly think that, that it is one of those ones that while not the most fun ride, like you said, that you're going to take all year, it is probably one of the most worthwhile. And uh, what, what did you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I kind of joked around a bit about it not being fun, but <laughs> it there are some very in, there's some very enjoyable sections of of the film, and we can see we can see the difficulty of living this nomad nomadic life. 
but also see some of the benefits as well. And so there, there is that balance, even though ultimately uh, it can be a very emotional uh, and even sad experience at times. I, I don't want to give away my hand too early because I still have so many films to watch to close out 2020, uh, but it's it's one of my favorites of the year. This is this is an amazing movie. And I, did you like Zhao's previous film, The Writer, Steve? You know what? I'm sorry. I have not seen it. I Honestly, this is my first, uh, first real dive into her work. So, uh, no, I did not see The Writer. Yeah, well... You you should definitely check it out. It, it's very good. I, I actually think this one surpasses the writer. This, uh, the writer didn't make my top ten a few years ago when it when it was released, but it, it really is a special movie. This one is just um, it, it really is beautiful, and there is this balance, like I talked about, some scenes that are very depressing, that are very sad, but at the same time there are these joyful scenes. And we almost get the vibe of the film by watching the portrait landscapes here. We get to see the barren wasteland that is Nevada in the winter, in the middle of nowhere. And then we get to see the Badlands in the summer. And it's just, it's magnificent. And and that's what this type of lifestyle brings. Uh, and that's what she experiences uh, throughout her life. Scenes of just incredible joy and ecstasy in the sense of her surroundings and then also these barren isolated scenes so a lot to process in this movie but it really is i think it really is a special picture yeah it it truly it truly is and one of the things that i think is central to this particular film is to me it sort of redefines the nature of what a relationship is because there are all these different levels on which the relationships seem to seem to operate there's her relationship to the landscape and and there's her relationship to these people that she meets along the way who she has an instant camaraderie with and then may never see again you know um there's there's her relationship to uh the her, her materials or or what she what she had versus what she needs uh, even the relationships with her family. And I mean, this this scene where she finally gets to go to her sister's house and sit and have dinner with her family. Uh, and they, because of their ignorance to the experience, I they just become the most unlikable people. Because by that point, you were sort of invested in, wait a second, this this lifestyle that she is uh, that she's adopted as her own has its own culture, and the way that these relationships all sort of shift and move around, I think there's such an honesty in this work that that you know, and and I know we we were joking before about it not being a fun ride, but it's such a worthwhile one, and there's moments that are light and moments that are fun. But it's it's it just feels like it is such a reflective piece on what it means to coexist with your environment and with those around you. It's it's truly remarkable. Yeah, and I I like the complexity or the nuance here. And I guess when I started the film, and it starts out it starts out pretty sad. I was expecting the movie 
to carry that tenor. And it, it would be about how the economy has failed these individuals. And it, and it is about that. But th- there's also something, something more. And you mentioned when Frances McDermott's character, and, and she's fantastic. Just by the unbelievable. Way. I mean, she is, oh. it is, it is, she's incredible. And when she visits her family, uh, we do get the sense that they don't quite understand her. But we also get this sense in the conversation between her and her sister that she doesn't understand them and that she possibly has made some decisions to isolate herself from her family. And she's chosen not to put down roots. And that has produced certain outcomes. Some of them uh, seem like they could be pretty good and some of them uh, possibly not so good. Early in the film too, we see her working at Amazon. And Amazon, uh, in to certain groups of people, is this kind of big, bad corporation. And I was really kind of fascinated in what I would see. And it feels very sterile and lifeless mm. within the Amazon warehouse, while at the same time not being this caricature of a, of a sweatshop, if that makes sense, to where it's saying... This can be a soul-sucking place, but she also makes friends with a number of the people there, and there's some joy within that. It's not a completely terrible uh, business to to work in. So I don't know. It it really kind of works in some of those complexities and and makes the film, I think, in the end, more meaningful and contemplative for me. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the things I love about the film is this conversation about being homeless versus houseless. And that that comes up a couple of times where uh, is home, the comment is made, home, is it just a word or is it something you carry with you? And there's this idea of what does it take, what does it mean to find life in a home? And what is the definition? What is the what is the difference in definition between a home and a house? And even uh, at one point where her character visits uh, her former house, um, and it, it just feels so cold. Powerful scene. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and it's silent, but it's so cold oh. in there. Um, you want her to step back out at that point because there's there's something about that home or that house is no longer home for her. Um, and it's, it's such an interesting dialogue and I've had some opportunity to volunteer and work with the homeless and, and the opportunity for them to start over is present where they go. And, and you see that in this particular film. And and I will say I will say this. Um, there's an interesting moment in the film at the very beginning that I th- I don't know if I'm reading too much into when I say this, but I do find it fascinating. I don't know. I, I know that you and Kevin love to pay attention to music choices, um, but in the opening when she is in that store and she runs into her family or that that family and she's talking to their daughter and there's a song in the background and the song is what child is this it's at at christmas time and the song is what child is this and to me that's such a fascinating choice for that moment because 
that whole song is based on the premise that the Christ child is moving through without a home. You know, he's in a stable at this time of year. We think about him born in a manger with no place to lay his head. There's a nomadic element within that story. And I, I just thought it was a really interesting connection to lay to lay down in that particular scene. Oh man, that no, that's good. And I think there's a point maybe even before that where she's also singing that song too at, while she's driving. And it that's a great observation. I I wrote down the song because it does invoke this sort of longing. But I think you're right uh, that the nomadic nature of Jesus's family and, and how they did have to leave uh, to Egypt after they had already have, had to leave for Bethlehem, uh, that definitely says something about the nomadic lifestyle and this longing for home, or perhaps finding home while you're on while you're on the road. I also love the community that she meets. And I mentioned before, there there's a real life individual, Bob Wells. A number of the characters in this movie are actually real people playing themselves. And Bob Wells is this individual in the film where he essentially brings together people who are like Fern and they have this community for a short period of time out in the desert and they also help teach each other how to live this nomadic lifestyle. And it's really kind of a fun sequence. And so my, my family, we have a, uh, a pop-up trailer. So it's one of those that you like unhook and you got to crank up and it's got canvas. It's like a glorified tent. And, and we've gone on some trips and it's fascinating because some of the things they're learning at this camp are things like you kind of have to learn. Like it might sound weird, but like you do kind of have to learn how to go to the bathroom in a bucket. Like that's that's the thing. Like sometimes that might happen. Or Fern, she works at a campsite and that's places you know, like a place that we've gone before. And I just love the community aspect of that sequence. And the cherry on top for me is this long sort of shot where we follow Fern through the camp as she's saying hello hi how you doing people are using her name they're not just looking at her as a person passing through like she she is known in that world and it is an amazing shot and there's this it's just this this piano driven piece in the background most of the film is is silent but you get this piano playing and it's it's wonderful i think it's one of the best moments in film in 2020 this year because it says so much and it's just composed so beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. That this is, this is the thing, you know, when you think about nomads, um, I'll, I'll be honest before I saw this film, I thought about no names. Like I thought about the idea of being nomadic as somebody who had no interest in, in the outside world. And this sort of reshaped, reshaped my own perspective. And, in a film like this, like the fact that she is known shows the value in her story and every one of their stories so often. Um, there's just these little things, these, these really intimate moments that bring the people to life. 
and and you get to know them. You know, um, you get to know Swanky. She's she's in the movie for for some time, and she's not in it forever. But you get to care about these these people, um, and and ce- almost celebrate. Uh, going back to relationship, their experience and their relationship with with the land. Uh, they even refer to them at one point as uh, the what. There's a line that says, "What the nomads are doing isn't that different than the pioneers." Fern is part of that American tradition. Um, now I'm Canadian, so it's a little different, but <laughs> <laughs> but it it it, yeah. it truly is. There there's a spirit in this film that I didn't expect and, and a soul. I, I, I dare use the term soul to this film, uh, in that way that, uh, it really is a, the, one of those, what I like to call steak dinner films. Like you just want to savor it as you're watching it. Oh yeah. And well, and, and you mentioned soul. There's this really great conversation at the end with, with Bob Wells and with Fern and they talk about grief and loss. And I think that's what, there's just so many dimensions to this film. It is about the economy. It is about grief and loss. It is about community. It is about this deep connection to the land. It speaks to a number of, of those issues. But he's having this great conversation and talking about moving on. And in, in a film where a person kind of spends their life on the road and talks about moving on, like you, you can almost guess the cliche conversations that would come about, you know, you just got to look forward, don't look back. And they essentially kind of talk about the importance of that, but they do it in a way that just feels profound. And, and then Bob Wells talks about how there is no final goodbye and how just like you're on the road, you meet somebody, you might meet them again. You never know. When someone passes away, like you're gonna meet him again, and that, and there's this deep kind of spirituality that uh, in this film, to where the film is is connected to the natural world, but it also understands that there are bigger there are bigger things out there, uh, that there is this supernatural world that lies beyond all of this, and that's something to hope for, and especially for people who are searching for a home, the idea that. There, there is, there is a home, and, and we're in the Christmas season right now. We're, we're, we just talked about the first Advent, right? We talked about what child is is this, and thinking about the second Advent, we think about that joy, that longing that will eventually be fulfilled. We will be home, and the characters they long for that as well. Uh, wait, are are we gonna have to do an Advent series on this film? It sounds like <laughs> sounds like that may be the next step. Uh, it's a yeah, right. <laughs> But yeah. well, you know, in the bleak midwinter, we long for we long for that home, and and yeah. you get the bleak midwinter here in this movie at times. Oh my gosh, yes, you do. Um, and you know, uh, I, I love that you said that about the the spiritual nature of this, because the truth is, one of the things about the film is it really the the. When she's out on her journey, you get the sense that she matters, but everything around her is so much larger than she is. It almost reorients her position in the universe. Like, this is not a film that 
tells you how amazing, you know, uh, you know, this one person is and how they've changed the world. But it is a, it is a film that reminds us that there are people that matter, but the world is so much bigger than us, which I think points to a much larger creator and reorients our relationship to what's around us. It, it's it's an unbelievable sort of experiential film. I wish I hadn't seen it on my laptop. I'll be serious. I'm serious. <laughs> this is, I, I yeah. mean, this is one that is almost the most 2020 movie and should be the least 2020 movie uh, <laughs> in, in so many ways. Well, I, I got to see it on my TV at home but it had it had the watermark across the top, so I had to stare at my 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 name. And you know, there are always those shots where where the 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 eye line is like right there on your name. And you're like, I can't see the character's eyes. I just see Wade Bearden. That's what I see. So so really, the story is about you. Is that what we're hearing, Wade? Is that what we're? Yeah, right. <laughs> I'll always try when the screen goes dark. During the beginning, I'll always try to point and be like, hey, I'll point at my wife. I'll say, hey, Priscilla, look, there's a guy that named, named Wade who helped make this movie. That's crazy. <laughs> it's like this, you know, this joke that's not really funny, but I keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, that is our review of Nomad Land. We're reviewing it for the end of 2020 because it did hit a couple of theaters during this year and it did hit the festival circuit so it is eligible for our end of the year list it won't be hitting a theatrical run for most audiences until february but when it does hit that you're definitely going to want to check out this movie we'll be back in just a moment we're going to be talking about the mandalorian maybe a little whiplash here we'll go from nomadland to the Mandalorian, but if you have seen Nomadland, if you've been uh, privileged to be able to watch it on the festival circuit or in theaters, make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back with Mando and Baby Yoda here in just a moment. No Way to Live by Phantom Atlantic. Listeners, we are so thankful for all of you who support us via our Patreon campaign. If you'd like to support Seeing and Believing, just hop on over to www.patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. You get some great perks and you also keep the show going. I also want to encourage you to rate and review Seeing and Believing wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Stitcher, Apple iTunes, 
or Spotify. Just give us a star rating, type out a short review. Every little bit helps. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be talking about The Mandalorian. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Show me the one whose safety deemed such destruction. You must reunite it with its own kind. Where? This you must determine. The songs of eons past tell of battles between Mandalore the Great and an order of sorcerers called Jedi. You expect me to search the galaxy and deliver this creature to a race of enemy sorcerers? This is the way. Listeners, we continue this week's show with our review of Season 2 of Disney Plus's The Mandalorian. Now, before we continue, I would like to offer a disclaimer. We're actually going to be reviewing through Episode 7 of Season 2. We're not going to hit the season finale, which actually lands when this episode lands. So if you haven't watched that episode, no need to worry. We will be talking about some spoilers. So if you're not caught up in The Mandalorian, you might want to pause this episode and come back later. But I think it's really kind of the best way to do it. Here's a quick synopsis of the television show for those who have not been watching. Created by Jon Favreau, The Mandalorian tells the story of a lone gunfighter making his way through the outer reaches of the galaxy, far from the authority of the New Republic. Starring Pedro Pascal, The Mandalorian might be best known for its inclusion of Baby Yoda, a child who's not actually named Baby Yoda, and is not a baby version of Yoda. Now, Stephen, I know you're a big Star Wars fan, like me, and so before we jump into this season of the show, I want to first ask you, what did you think of the first eight episodes that premiered last year in season one? Uh, well, I have to say, though, too, as you're going, as you're, as you were giving us the synopsis, I can all I uh-huh. hear is the theme song in the background there. Yeah, it's like uh, it's a pretty great song. Um, well, you know, anytime, anytime the the title uh, sequence comes on and it's like da dun, <laughs> I always have to put my hand up and act like I don't play the piano, but I act like I'm hitting the notes da dun every time. I can't stop myself from yeah. doing it. And I have to watch the art at the end of each episode when they do the... Oh, it's, of course. it's just beautiful. Yeah. I, I absolutely... It's so much fun. Um, you know what? I was skeptical, of course, uh, of season one when it started because, after all, a Star Wars series has never been done before in live action. We've seen it work in cartoons, if you will. Animated fair has been going on for, for decades at this point. Um, but a live action one, sure. Okay. But it, 
it really uh, restored a lot of my faith in the in the Disney canon of Star Wars, if you will. It restored a great deal in me. Um, I love the Western atmosphere that I missed so much uh, from the original films. The everything is sort of a Wild West shootout. Um, Din Djarin is such such a unique character to what we've seen in the films before. Uh, in some ways, I was thinking about this before this podcast. I'm like, has he become now one of the most iconic characters in the Star Wars universe? It's possible. Um, hmm. Just because of, even though he dressed like Boba Fett, he wasn't Boba Fett. And we learned so much about his lore and and his code. And yes, Baby Yoda. And I'm going to call him that, even though we know his name now. I'm going to call him <laughs> Baby Yoda. He's adorable. <laughs> I still didn't feel like they overused him, you know. Mm. He, so much of the so much of the series, he's luggage, which I think is helpful. Um, you know, if it became the Baby Yoda and Mandalorian show as opposed to uh, the Mandalorian show, uh, I think that really would have re- repositioned it for me. But there's just something something wonderful about the raw nature of the world they've they've recreated uh and it's so the first season is so grounded it's so interesting i mean the the word jedi is not even used uh in that Mm. first season this is this is a series that wanted to take star wars in a direction that didn't include the skywalkers uh and I and I found that it was such a unique take that it opened the world up in some wonderful ways. What what did you think, Wade? Yeah, so season one, it definitely has its weaknesses, but I very much enjoyed it. And I, I would tell people, you know, it, it's not the best television show <laughs> of the year, but it might be my favorite to watch. And part of that is just because my kids, they love it. They love The Mandalorian. One of my favorite parts of the week is usually on Friday night where we sit down and we watch that week's episode. I just, I mean, it's it's fantastic. And so there's a little bit of that that compels me to like the show, maybe sometimes even more than it, it warrants. We haven't had a chance to talk about it on the podcast. I think I, I briefly mentioned that it, it's been a lot of fun. And so season one, I, I thought it was pretty great. Season two carries over some of the same structure as season one, and we can probably get into that, but I'm, I think I'm mostly concerned here with just going and, and hanging out in the Star Wars universe. I, I wanted a show that would just let me live in Star Wars for a little while and have some compelling characters. And I think that's where this episode, or sorry, this season uh it really excels and i think the show overall excels for that reason and one good example is probably the weakest episode of season two and that's when they go to the calamari home planet and i i'm not a huge fan of that episode but i enjoyed it because we get to see this 
planet that we probably have thought about for a while. And I've only read some of the Star Wars books, so maybe they've gone there in the past in some graphic novel or, or, or one of the novels. But it was just, it was kind of fascinating to see, oh, this is where Admiral, Admiral Akbar came from, <laughs> and this is the type of food that they eat. And in that sense, I think the the film or the television show is 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 a is a win in in multiple different levels. Uh, there's more I'll go into, but but I think that's one of the my favorite aspects of the television show. Just let me let me live the Star Wars. Let me <laughs> let me be the Star Wars. Well, you know, it, it's funny because um, I was joking with you earlier that I I really see some comparisons, especially in season one. Between Nomadland and The Mandalorian. Um, it sounds bizarre. Okay, yeah. It sounds bizarre. But when you look at uh, look at the style, uh, the first season is really about a wandering soul who finds community. And yes, I mean, the community is... is Baby Yoda, but he also has these little, this little troop that he sort of fall, that sort of forms around him, and and he is not in the same way as Fern, but he is somewhat of a wandering spirit. You know, that's one of the things. You know, they say this is the Star Wars series for people that don't like Star Wars, uh, because there is. He is somebody who operates under his own code, under his own rules. Um, he refuses to he refuses to sort of lie uh, under the trend, like we talked about Nomadland taking uh, taking place in the midst of this recession. So too does this series take place in a time when the universe is being is trying to find itself. Um, you know, the, the empire is supposedly defeated. Um, and, and there's this sort of, you know, we talk about this wild West atmosphere and I, I think there's this fascinating journey into the wilderness, which seems and feels similar to Nomadland. Um, I will tell you this, you talk about season two, I've had a blast in season two, I love it. It's been great. Um, I'm also terrified of it. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you why. Um, what scares me about it is I don't want it to become the Iron Man 2 of the Star Wars universe, where every episode feel is them setting up the next spinoff. And, uh, and as we mm. saw in the... In you know, recently with the Disney Investors Day, they announced ten new series, which is is great. I'm looking forward to some of these shows. Um, there's some exciting announcements, but I just want the Mandalorian to be allowed to be the Mandalorian and not forced to be a launch pad for every new Disney Plus series. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I'm a little more pessimistic on the ten new television shows. It. I think the beauty of The Mandalorian is, okay, one season a year, there are no Star Wars movies coming out. We, you know, we, we get a new episode every week for the short amount of time, eight weeks. Uh, oh, that's fantastic. But the idea of, oh, 10 shows now, I, you know, and you got to watch these two in order to make sense of this show. I, I don't know. But 
I, I've really enjoyed season two as well. And I, I think the biggest gripe that I have heard from people is that there are certain episodes that don't advance the overall story. So this is a serialized story. There is a big narrative going on that does relate to Baby Yoda and possibly even Snoke. Who knows? <laughs> there, there's there's a lot and that it connects Admiral to. Admiral Thrawn. Admiral Thrawn, baby. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no. And, and so, so there is this overall story, but you do have certain episodes that they are self-contained and it's uh, maybe even like a video game. You show up, you've got to complete a mission and then you go somewhere else. Uh, and people said, I just, I kind of want more of the story. I, I've been okay with that. And a part of it goes back to what I, I think is a really grand vision for Star Wars. And one of the original visions, uh, George Lucas, he talked about how he would go to the movie theater on Saturdays and they would play these old serials and there was kind of a big story going on, but at the same time, if you missed a couple weeks, like you, you were okay, you were fine. And if you look at the really good Star Wars films, they they connect to each other, but at the same time, they're 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 a standalone story. You can pick up Empire Strikes Back at any moment, and you can watch that film, and you feel like you've watched a story. Even this, even though the story's not necessarily "quote unquote" complete, and so I, I think this television show acts like that in a way. We just we go to a new planet, somewhere new, somewhere unique. There's an adventure, and they move on to the next stage, and we watch those episodes kind of over and over again. And even though they might not advance the story, they're just there. Now, some of the episodes, I think are uh, weaker than others because the formula is kind of the same and it doesn't really do anything new. So a couple of episodes, okay, yeah, Mando, you've got to go on this mission and then we'll give you what you want. And the mission's okay. The mission's fine. Uh, But then I'm telling you, man, (laughs) this show really started ramping up when it got to the fifth episode and Boba Fett, he appeared a couple episodes ago and he's great. I... I love him. And, you know, I know some people, oh, you know, you're messing with the Star Wars mythology and this and that. I don't know. I think it's great to see Boba Fett just just fly around and shoot stuff. It's been wonderful. Oh, you know, it, it, see, there are the little things that I do love. And and bringing back, uh, I'm going to mess up his name, but Tamura, uh, Tamura Morrison from the prequels, mm-hmm. I think that's great. That makes so much sense. You know, there's a bit of a continuity there, and yet it's a loose continuity. It's good. I don't mind those side episodes. Are they the most exciting? No. No, they're not. But one of the things I have appreciated about this particular series is that when they're not advancing plot, they're often advancing character. And I will Mm. say, you know, we're not uh, addressing the season finale. People were really excited about the penultimate episode that aired last week. That, And I'll be honest, from a story perspective, it fits in one of those ones that you said. The same structure. Uh, we'll, we have to do this thing, and then we can do the thing that you want us to do, which is go fight <laughs> the Empire. But that, to me, was one of my favorite character episodes. And... 
I'll give you an example. There are a couple of things that happen, and I, I don't want to give away spoilers, but there's a significant moment in the case of Din Djarin where, I guess I have to say this, he actually removes his mask. And it may mm-hmm. be the yeah. only time in the series that he takes it and we see his face. I don't think we've seen his face until that episode. And Oh, um, very briefly in season one, when he's hurt, like we see it and he's kind of, I think, bloodied. Oh, okay. See, I didn't remember that. But there's certainly... But it's but it's super brief. Yeah, and he sits in this, though, for like 10 minutes of the mm. episode. But you know it means something. And meanwhile, Bill Burr is having this conversation with a former Imperial officer that he used <laughs> to, uh, used to f- work for or used to, I don't know what the proper term is, used to serve under, I suppose. And... It's a quiet scene, but it's just a great conversation. And there are a couple of them in this episode. Like, it was kind of funny because in that episode, for example, you could tell that they were building to that because all of a sudden we need to have a fight scene uh, halfway through to try and keep people watching. But I thought, man, these conversations, when they happen in these smaller episodes, can be really, really powerful. And I... Oh yeah. I think that's what the show does well. It hasn't just hasn't just created a story. And I think the story's fun. Don't get me wrong. Like I want them to go up there and blast the star the star cruiser out of the sky and, you know, take down stormtroopers. I don't know what happens in the finale, but I can't wait to see that. But it's it really is about the Mandalorian. This is about a man, a character and how he has changed. Even with his interaction and his experience with these, as he calls them, space wizards, he's come into a spiritual context for the first time in his life in season two. Um, Before, in season one, Mm. when he would see baby Yoda, Yoda do these things, he had no concept. But in season two, they're starting to delve into some of the spiritual heart of Star Wars without letting it take over. But it's changing mm. his character. And I think that's why it works. Oh, man. You know, you mentioned the section where he takes off his helmet. And they've built that up so much. You know, he can't take it off. That you feel... It's a it's an incredibly tense scene. Not just because they might get caught. But also, his helmet is off for a really long time. And it just feels... It feels like I feel when I'm in a store and I... Uh, you know, maybe I'm taking a sip of something and I forgot to put my mask on and I'm like, oh no, my mask. You know, oh no. <laughs> that's what it feels like. It's like, oh, you you know, you need to put that back on. But it says something. His mask comes off shortly in the first episode or the first season because he needs to be saved. Uh, he needs to save himself. That's why he does it. It comes off in this episode because he self-sacrificially wants to save um, Grogu, baby, baby Yoda. It still feels <laughs> weird calling that. That's a terrible name. It's, it's, it depresses <laughs> yeah. me. Go ahead. And <laughs> you know, well, and there, there's a difficulty with a main character in a television show having a mask the entire time. And I think the, I think the show does run into some limitations in terms of developing his character because he is kind of a one note guy. We can't see his face. Overall, I still love the show, but. This season has done a good job of of moving his character forward, despite 
that he is wearing a mask. And despite he is a very laid back individual, he is a straight shooter. Uh, and I think that this episode helps to culminate that. And really, it does a fantastic job. And then once again, we just keep going back to Boba Fett. He's, <laughs> he's amazing. But but if you look at some of the character moments, and you're, you're, you've mentioned some of the character moments, um, we see that throughout the television show. There's one in particular, and it's in that big episode uh, where they meet the Jedi. It's just called the Jedi, right? And for people who've watched the Clone Wars, like you're definitely all over that. But within the city, there, there are a group of people, of course, the villagers, the city dwellers who are oppressed. And one of those is a man who was the former governor. And he's actually played here by Wing T. Chow. And what's fascinating, he's actually a Disney Imagineer. And he had a cameo in that episode. And we get to see him living within that city and then coming coming back to his place of power, a place to protect the individuals. And it's a really great moment with his characters. And so we see that throughout the show. And we might not ever go back to that city and see that character again, but it was this nice this nice moment in a singular episode. And it's great to see that throughout the series. Yeah, they they take their time to make sure that those things balance it out, which you can't do in two hours. Um, or it's it's more difficult to do to make them land in a Star Wars film, I, I find. Like, when you think about it, more time has been spent with this character than maybe all of the films strung together at this point. Um, so we've had a lot of time to follow, uh, follow this character as he moves along. And I do think, you know, you talked about how he's sort of a one note character. And I think that's why baby Yoda is so important because baby Yoda humanizes him and makes him like, he looks like a robot. He's in a shiny suit. He could mm-hmm. be a droid, um, but Baby Yoda humanizes his character to the point that that we're willing to to invest our time in him and look for these little moments. So we do care about him, and we do care about these these interactions that he has with these these subtle people. There's a wonderful interaction with a woman in season one. I cannot think of her name, but he almost, there's this temptation for him to stay in this, in this culture. Um, I think that's where he first meets Gina uh, Carano's character. Um, But they're in, they're in the woods and there's this woman there and she, uh, that's the first time I remember him taking off his mask. Uh, But you see Mm -hmm. him from the back and, and, and you get to sense that, that there really is somebody behind the mask and which, by the way, he would probably do very well in 2020. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like full, full body suit. Mm-hmm. Like you gotta, you gotta give him credit for that. So. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Now, and 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 Baby Yoda is is great, and you you can just you can almost see the dollar signs <laughs> appearing in Mickey's eyes when you see any sort of, because. Baby Yoda's everywhere, right? Uh, everybody loves him. I mean, he's he's fantastic. Even 
uh, people who don't watch the show are like, oh yeah, Baby Yoda is cool. And uh, I, I think there's there's so much uh, to the storytelling that lends itself to Baby Yoda being great. Uh, I like the practicality of the television show, the lived-in aesthetic. And if you ever watch the gallery show on Disney+, Plus, it's it's really good to see some of the ways practical effects are used in this television show and even uh, projectors behind the actors instead of green screens. Uh, these, these giant screens where images are placed on top of them while they're filming instead of uh, in a computer. And, and that's f- fantastic. I think John Favreau, uh, yeah, hats off to him. And then also uh, Dave uh, Filoni, who has done a lot of work with this television show and he did a lot of work with the, the Clone Wars. And so this is one of those, I, I tell people, it's not, a, it's not a perfect television show. And I know a lot of people don't like it, but for someone who's really enjoyed Star Wars and whose kids are into Star Wars, it's just, it's a lot of fun to watch week in and week out. Oh, absolutely. And, and I will say too, when that uh, docu-series came out, um, it was so obviously to me that it was a cash in because they were low on content for Disney Plus. <laughs> yes. But having said that, it's fascinating. <laughs> There's some great stuff in there. And and that overarching digital screen technology that they that they pioneered, uh, which now everyone is begging to use. I mean, it is just uh, just remarkable. And there's some really interesting stuff in there. So it actually feels like good supplementary viewing. Um, if if but you're right, it it's not the perfect show. I I mean, at showing some Canadian love here. When I was a child, there was a show called The Littlest Hobo, and it was about a dog. I, I, this is a real thing. You can look it up. And I every Canadian of my age knows the theme song. But it was about this dog, and he would go from town to town, and that was it, and he would help them along the way. And I've heard so many comparisons up here of the show like this. Look it up on YouTube. I'll send you the link. <laughs> yeah, I know. As you're, as you're saying that, I am typing this in right now. I got it. That, I got to check that's this That's CanCon, <laughs> my friend. That is Canadian content from the 80s. But so, I mean... Oh, man. The, the reviews in Canada are very different. It's like... This is an eight-part series about how the Mandalorian takes the littlest hobo and reinvents and reimagines that Brings story. Brings it to 20th it. Century, 21st century. <laughs> um, that's, that's it. But uh, no, and having said that, you're right. It's not a perfect show, but it is so enjoyable. And because of its change in, in style and focus that differs from the films – in some ways, it's more accessible, I think, to the average person who's intrigued by it. Because the truth is, the the movies are their own thing. And yes, there's there's this whole Star Wars world, and if you love Star Wars, that's great. But The Mandalorian grounds itself in a way that I think anybody can watch and enjoy. And uh, I think that's something special. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. Listeners, we would love to hear your thoughts about The Mandalorian as I mentioned before, this is the first time we've talked about it on Seeing and Believing. We give it an official review, and we want to hear your thoughts. We know so many people are watching it. And if you look at movies, current movies that are new releases, television shows that are new releases, I think The Mandalorian is probably the most popular piece of content, of art out there right now. And so we'd love to get your thoughts. 
make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We've reached the end of the episode, and Steve, this is the part of the show where Kevin and I usually recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners, and I've asked you to bring a recommendation to the show. You've done that graciously. What would you like to recommend to our listeners this week? Well, Wade, uh, The Littlest Hobo is one of the most iconic series. (laughs) Oh, no. No, 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 no. Scratch that. It's ridiculous. Um, No, what I would like to recommend, and I absolutely implore your listeners to watch a film that is should be on Amazon Prime now um, is directed by Darius Martyr, and the film is called Sound of Metal. Uh, oh, Sound of Metal, okay. I pun intended. I want to bang the drum about this film. <laughs> oh, and, no. no, I'm serious, man. <laughs> this is this is one of my favorite films in the last two years. And and wow. I say that because I actually the first time I actually saw it was it was at the at uh, TIFF last year and I saw it and it disappeared. It got bought by Amazon and they held it back until now. And this is a very special film in so many ways. It's about a, a rock and roll drummer played by Riz Ahmed who during a show loses his hearing uh, early on in the film and his whole life is thrown out the window. His livelihood, his energy, his life is, is thrown into music and he has no hearing. And so he, he steps into, Mm. he, he, he steps into a deaf community and it's about his learning how to be a part of that community and grapple with his new way of life this film has some surprises. Uh, it has some remarkable, uh, remarkable conversations. It uses actual actors from the deaf community so uh, as well in many, many of the roles. Um, and, and I do not say this lightly, Wade. I can say this on this podcast. It has the most poignant, brief but poignant conversation about what it means to be in the kingdom of God than I have ever heard in a film ever. Oh, wow. Uh, I, uh, faith-based films, I won't rail on them, uh, but they, their dialogue <laughs> can miss. But there is, there is this one moment that happened in this film and it lands and you just go, what just happened? Because um, I have never heard it referenced in a film at all, let alone in this way. And I just thought it was incredible. Uh, so Sound of Metal, uh, it is on Amazon Prime. Wow. I, I, I didn't have any concept of that film, hadn't heard about that film until it hit Amazon Prime just, I think, a week or two ago. And I, I, I started to hear about it. And you messaged me when we were talking about this episode and you said, have you seen it? I said, no. And you sung its praises and it's on my list. I I will watch it. 
uh, I plan to watch it before I put together my top 10 list. We usually do that mid-January. It takes us a while to get through everything. Um, but man, that that just makes me even more excited it, it, it is the uh, about that movie. It's not on the list. It is the list. <laughs> <laughs> it is the list. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. So my recommendation this week, it, I'm doing something a little different. Uh, sometimes I recommend, and sometimes I'll say, hey, I kind of recommend this, but it's a new release. It's something people might be interested in, and I'd, I'd like to just share a little bit about it. That's what I'm going to do this time. And I'm actually going to be talking about the new film from Christopher Landon, and that's Freaky. I mentioned this on the show a couple of months ago when I was talking to Kevin about films I, I was anticipating for the fall-winter season. And Christopher Landon is a filmmaker to watch, he made the Happy Death Day movies, films I thought were were a lot of fun, and that worked pretty well, and was very much looking forward to Freaky. It's now available to watch on VOD, and I like this movie, but I'm not sold on this movie. The premise is uh, basically a, a twisted take on Freaky Friday. A serial killer, played by Vince Vaughn, switches body bodies with a teenager played by Catherine Newton. And you can just imagine all the fun that they would have with that. Now this teenage girl who's shy is off killing individuals and the teenage girl, her consciousness is in the body of a serial killer and she's trying to stop herself. So all of that's kind of taking place. It It is fun, though the plot becomes rather conventional. I will say this though, it's it's really great to see Vince Vaughn act like a teenage <laughs> girl. It that's that just really it it works extremely well, and I think Catherine Newton uh, is is great too. So there's there's some to recommend there for people who might not be too keen on violence. It does have a lot of dark humor. Violence uh, people are killed in a, in a number of unusual over-the-top ways. So be advised on that. Uh, but that's my quick take on the film from Christopher Landon, Freaky. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. I always appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your work. I appreciate what you're doing in the art community and the critic community. If our listeners want to learn more about you and how you talk about really movies and film and television shows uh, each and every week. How can they do that? Well, first of all, Wade, thank you so much. I, I always appreciate the chance to chat with you, uh, whether it's on your show or on ours. So I just thank you so much. It's always a privilege. And um, yeah, uh, absolutely. You can find us on uh, screenfish.net. That's our, our website for the overall ministry. You can find our podcast, Screenfish Radio, uh, wherever you're, hopefully wherever your podcasts are available. Um, Apple, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, all those places we should be on there as well. And uh, with our podcast, we we are we love to delve into the idea of film and conversations as well. Uh, we usually take one film a week and we we deep dive into it with usually two or three different people. I like to mix it up, try and bring in some different guests, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So uh, you can find us there. You can also find us on Twitter and you know Facebook and on Instagram uh, as well. So look for Screenfish in all those places. Yeah, listeners definitely do that. And this is actually. Our final show of 2020, we're going to take a couple of weeks off, and I'm excited about some new films coming out. Pixar Soul, I am pumped about that one. That one is coming to Disney+. Plus. 
And then uh, I may have rented out a theater with a couple of family members to go see Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, So I'm excited about seeing that shortly after Christmas. So that's going to be good. We'll have our reviews for those films coming here soon. But for now, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. It is brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden, and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.